today on Foodstuffs. How one arts and labor festival is taking the protest for migrant workers' rights from the street to the gallery. When a message needs to get out, every forum will do. It's dangerous work farming for anyone who does it, but it's often more dangerous in a situation where you've set up the power dynamics to be complete and utter control and power over a group of workers. Hi, my name is Tzazna Miranda Leal. I'm an organizer with Justice for Migrant Workers, and I'm also one of the curators for the show Art and Tomatoes. And you're listening to Foodstuffs. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Goman. So happy May, Jess. <laughs> Yay, it's May. Uh, it's not exactly entirely warm here yet, but we're at that time of year. We've made it. There's green on the trees in my backyard right now. I can't believe it. Very true. It's green. It's rainy. You gotta <laughs> love it. May, <laughs> here we go. And you actually got out in celebration of May Day on Monday, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so May Day, which is exactly directly tied to spring way, way back in pagan times, um, is now much more than that. It's International Workers' Day. So there's something called the Mayworks Festival of Working People and the Arts, and that started on Monday here in Toronto. All of this is a roundabout way to explain that this festival gave us an opportunity to talk about something that you in particular, but both of us have been wanting to talk about for quite some time. Um, I sort of swooped right in there. Sorry, Brian. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just happy we're talking about it. Uh, today, we're actually going to be talking about migrant workers. Um, so there's been increasing awareness of... Uh, around this issue, around the conditions that which some of uh, Canada's migrant workers, uh, migrant farmers are working and living. And like we said, this is a really important topic. I'm really glad we're talking about this today. Yeah. So uh, we are talking about it. We're just getting there in an unexpected way. That's right. But, yeah. <laughs> but I am also glad we're adding to this growing conversation about foreign workers in this country. So Queso and Sasna are organizers with Justice for Migrant Workers. And they collectively spent last year organizing a caravan, which means, of course, a large group of people traveling together. Um, So this crossed southern Ontario last fall. So if you happen to be in one of what I believe is 22 Ontario cities or towns, um, if I got my count right, in the fall of last year, you may have caught a glimpse of the Harvesting Freedom Caravan. So Justice for Migrant Workers is a political collective, and their caravan started in Leamington, Ontario, not far from the border near Detroit. If Leamington sounds familiar, there's a good reason for that, which we'll get into later on. Now, from Leamington, the caravan of what they described as migrant workers and their allies dotted along, stopping in communities small and large, winding up in Ottawa with the ultimate aim of getting the new Trudeau government to start offering permanent residency to temporary migrant farm workers. Right. And this really is a political issue at its core and something that speaks volumes about our values as a society for the way we treat people within our borders. Exactly. Um, And it's a story about the people who are volunteering their time and efforts to make that situation better. So the caravan took place over the course of September, starting in Leamington, going through Six Nations, St. Catharines and Toronto, ending up in Ottawa on October 3rd. I met with Sazna Miranda Leal, and Queso at the Steelworkers Union 
Hall, or the Steelworkers Hall, forgive me, on Monday, which is May 1st, and saw and heard the story of why this caravan came to be. All right, so here we have Sazna Miranda Liao, an organizer for Husasia for migrant workers, and one of two creators behind the exhibit Art and Tomatoes, currently happening in three locations across Toronto. We'll be sure to let you know more about where you can see them for yourself at the end of the show. Yeah, exactly. As part of the Mayworks Festival of Working People and the Arts, talking about Hustasia and the campaign that led to the exhibit. Let's have a listen. So most of the pieces that are here weren't created for tonight, but were part of the caravan. So they were the props and visuals and banners and bandanas that were created for this campaign in September. And we just used the space, which is a union hall, in order to be able to describe what the process is like to create the artistic work of a campaign and also, you know, put in, I guess, a little bit of, you know, magic and imagination into it in the way we displayed it and with the bodies that we created mimicking a a march. Um, And the point was to make people feel like they were a part of it, even though it already happened, for people to reflect on what happened and the fact that we still didn't get um, the victory that we're looking for and and for people to have that visceral reaction to what the caravan was about even though it already ended um, mm-hmm. so it's a way for us to reflect and continue the political work um, that we started actually in January of last year but that culminated in September and October of last year. That's right and so we're talking about 2016 here can you just explain what 2016 means in the history of um, the fight for migrant rights? Yeah, so 2016 marked the 50th year of the existence of the Migrant Farm Worker Program. It's called the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program. And uh, it was originally created between Canada as an agreement between Canada and Mexico and Jamaica to bring farm workers Um, to work in the fields of um, several provinces in Canada. And, yeah, I guess it's been going on for 50 years, you know, in 2016. So we decided it was a good moment for a big action to pressure what then was a new government, the Liberal government, um, to action and to demand that farm workers be allowed to become permanent residents of Canada. Mm -hmm and uh, don't come here with work permits, but rather come here as permanent immigrants in the way that so-called skilled workers can come as permanent immigrants with their families, with full status, full access to um, health benefits, education, um, and other entitlements. Because I think initially when, um, 50 years ago when this program would have begun, the notion was that this is unskilled labor. Um, I think that enough uh, reporting both out of the States and in Canada as well, has come out to prove that there isn't the workforce in Canada to fill these jobs. There isn't the the will, at the very least, for local Canadians to be doing this work. So, in fact, it almost does become skilled labour in a roundabout way. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, I mean, when it was created, that was the way it was talked about, but still to this day, if you go on the immigration website for Canada, CIC, you will find a very specific and deliberate division of labor. Um, I think 
a couple of years ago, they changed it so they don't use the word unskilled or low skilled and high skilled anymore, but it's definitely always been referred to like that in our national classification system by um, what used to be HRSDC, Human Resources Canada. Mm -hmm. So initially uh, with Jamaica and now the rationale is the same that there's a labor shortage and there isn't the people to work the jobs. But in fact, what happened was that was in a way true, but Canada copied the program because they saw that in the States it already existed under the name H2 worker visa. And they saw that it provided a steady, low wage, conveniently exploitable workforce um, by the fact that they were tied by the work permit to their employer. And so we actually believe that the program also created the, the labor shortage in, in the long run because at the beginning there weren't very many people coming in the program and now there's more than 30,000 people every year. And so what happened was Canada ensured that the economy could build on the program and thus become completely reliant on a source of, you know, um, continuously on you know, workers are continuously unaware of their rights in Canada, exploitable, tied to a single employer, precarious in, in the way of their immigration status, and that couldn't fight for their rights. Can you just flesh that out a little bit more, just how vulnerable a position like that is? So you referred to the fact that a person is tied to a single employer. So let's kind of start from there and then explain what that, the vulnerability that that puts someone in. Right. So if you are coming from another country to work here, you need to have a work authorization given to you by the federal government, by immigration. And that is a work permit. It could be a study permit. It could be another thing. But in this case, it's a it's a work permit that states a very specific occupation. So you can't do any other work other than what it says, which usually, you know, says uh, farms, laborer, or you know, general laborer for construction, or whatever it is. It states that, and if you do any other work, you're technically doing unauthorized, undocumented work and can be deported from right. Canada. It also, for these programs, states your employer. And if you work for anyone else, meaning if on the weekend you go do some cash work at the next door farm, you can also be found to be doing unauthorized, undocumented work and be deported. And so it means that people... Um, have to protect their current employment to their single employer that their work permit is written out to um, so that they will continue to be able to work in Canada. And so that means, you know, can, I mean, imagine if you're working your job and you know you can be fired for complaining. Imagine if you could lose your immigration status and have to leave the country if you complained. That's what it means, right? Mm -hmm. It creates a situation in which it doesn't matter who you are, the odds are stacked against you yeah. by uh, making sure that it's completely precarious, the process in which you would um, complain and try and assert your rights. So, yeah, I feel like we should probably flesh out um, in your words what Justicia and what um, Justice for Migrant Workers is, is aiming to do. Okay, well, farming is, depending on what you read, one of the three most dangerous occupations in Canada by way of numbers of accidents or workplace deaths, um, you know, it varies, but it's up there with construction and mining and fishing in terms of um, the three Ds, right? It's difficult, it's dangerous, and it's dirty. Um, it's the kind of jobs that very few people want to do and that should be paid higher so that people want to do them. 
Um, the kind of work that Justicia for Migrant Workers does is we're a political collective, so that means we do a lot of different kinds of work. It's also unpaid. We are organizers that come from many different backgrounds. Some folks do academic work and they publish about the issues. A lot of us are organizers and we go out and do workplace organizing like you would think a union would, right? So address, you know, talk to work groups of workers, talk about what their rights are, uh, talk about what they can do at work, organize actions, pressure employers to pay, pressure employers to improve working conditions. We also engage in political campaigns to pressure provincial, municipal, or federal governments to change laws and to improve conditions, living and working conditions. We, um, we don't do direct service provision per se, like an agency would. Meaning, if somebody comes to us and says, um, I think they've been stealing my wages, what do I do? We don't fill out your employment's claim with you. So what we do is we're connected to community legal clinics all across the province, and we do a lot of referrals, and we support people in accessing services, which is an easy, um, because of literacy, language, accessibility, and scheduling okay. issues. So we do a lot of sort of facilitating and referrals for folks to be able to file claims, assert their rights, um, in terms of immigration, nobody, unless you go through other avenues, so for example, you marry someone in Canada right. and then are entitled to be sponsored by that person, you can never work here long enough to be entitled to become a permanent resident um, when you're doing an occupation that is deemed as low-skilled. Okay. So in terms of immigration, what ends up happening, what we do support folks to do is if they have an accident and they have to stay here to receive to receive care, we try and help them find someone who will do an extension of their work permit for them or, you know, apply to stay in Canada under humanitarian and compassionate ground grounds um, so they can stay for longer. Or, you know, if they found someone who they're in a relationship with and they're going to be sponsored, then we try to help them find someone who do will do their sponsorship application. Um, but, you know, as we said, there's no actual pathway for anyone, straightforward pathway for anyone to become a resident. So, yeah, just on the technical side, what does the temporary workers permit allow for then? If you're in the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which is the program with Mexico, Jamaica, Trinidad, the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, so all the small islands, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, etc., you can come indefinitely for eight months every year. So you'll come here for eight months or less, depending on the farm, mm -hmm. go back home, come back, but you can renew that every year. If you are in the so-called low-skilled program, which you know also includes farming, presumably folks could come back mm -hmm. or continue working here for a bit, but you know they can be here for four, eight years renewing a work permit and never be entitled to apply for permanent residence after that. Right, because they have to leave the country for four months at least. I think that it's shocking to realize that there are yeah, situations where workers aren't allowed to drink water, that they have to be in the field during crazy rainstorms with um, lightning happening and um, housing conditions are, yeah, can you just flesh it out? Because I do think it's important for people to realize that this is happening in our country. For sure, yeah. So, okay, so I think some of the stuff that we see is common in the program is completely substandard housing. We 
it's normal for the program to house 30, 40, 50 men in one house, bunk houses we call them, with bunk beds uh, where they share common spaces, so usually washrooms, living rooms, kitchens. And so they might have two, three, five, six stoves, right? But everybody has to um, cook for the next day all after a 13-hour shift. So there's maybe six hours of showering, but also kind of lining up to cook. So these places often start falling apart mid-season, and there's actual, actually no security um, clearance for them once the season has started. Um, and so there's been multiple bunkhouse fires because of you know unsafe conditions. So many people should not be in places that are often not even housing to begin with. They're converted barns, garages, um, trailer houses, which, you know, some people live in and it's it can be decent housing, but not when there's 12 people to one room. So there's absolutely no privacy, which we give for granted to, you know, the fact that we would have our own bedroom. Mm-hmm. So imagine living in a bunkhouse for eight months with eight guys per room or 10 people per room. And then the, the washroom situation, you can imagine. So we've seen overflown bathrooms, pest infested housing everywhere. Um some of these places are not warm enough or cold enough in the summer, right? Because they were barns or they were, you know, converted garages that aren't safe for housing. Um, although they will pass the very minimal inspections that the that the municipal authorities conduct. And then, um, so that's for housing. At work, it's dangerous work farming for anyone who does it, but it's often more dangerous in a situation where you've set up the power dynamics to be complete and utter control and power over a group of workers, which is, mind you, always a racialized dynamic where you have um, a completely racialized group of workers under the supervision of someone who knows they hold their immigration papers, right? So it just gives you complete free range for abuse, verbal abuse. I mean, some of these guys record what it's like in their workplace with their phones. And it's just yelling and insults. And obviously it's not like that everywhere, but it just, it sets up a a dynamic that it isn't like that in any other, in any other workplace Mm -hmm. that, you know, mostly white employers feel that it's okay to yell racial slurs and insults at gigantic groups of people working day in and out. Mm-hmm. It's often, like all farm work, 12, 13, 14-hour days during harvest season, um, very hard. A lot of repetitive strain injuries happen because of, you know, lifting, bending, like many other jobs. But um, it's very, very hard work long hours there's very little room to say no when you know that you can be fired or maybe there'll be no conflict but they won't ask for you again next season because that's the way it's set up you have to ask individually for each employee to come back to your workplace so um there's also no infrastructure right these towns are growing and growing i've seen rolls royce for the first time in my life in these communities out there Uh, yet there's no pl- public transit for towns that are sometimes bringing in six or 7,000 people every year who have to either walk or bike um, in rural roads, which you know are poorly lit. Mm-hmm. They don't have a good shoulder. They don't have a bike lane, obviously. Um, there's racial tensions in the communities as well, as you can imagine. You know, imagine an all-white community that is 25,000 people plus 7,000 racialized people during the summer. 
it gets tense. There's a lot of racial profiling by police. There's a lot of concern when migrant worker housing wants to be built close to downtown because of what that might do to the downtown areas and depreciate the value of either free time for local residents or you know air housing and different residential areas. Um, so, I mean, health and safety is a huge concern all the time. Again, you can't say no. So there's people working out in lightning storms, totally normal in some places. Um, there's folks who are operating machinery that they may or may not be completely qualified to do. Um, they may have been offered some training, but it might not have been in their, um, in their mother tongue. Um, there's very little health and safety um, concerns taken in some workplaces that are very large and industrial when it comes to pesticides or fertilizers um, or any other kind of pest control. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot, a lot of rashes and eye infections and nail problems, lung problems, all sorts of weird cancers that, you know, if you've ever tried to file for workers' compensation. They're very hard to link to the workplace um, with the help of a doctor. So, you know, it's, it's hard work, and mostly people can't say no because they don't have status. Mm -hmm. And so this does beg the question of where are these workers coming from, that it's worth this trek and putting up with um, conditions like this to yeah, to make the money that they do, which, again, by our standards, is not enough money for the work that they are doing. Um, yeah, so it's actually usually minimum wage. Um, there's no overtime paid in agriculture in Ontario, so you're not even making overtime the days that you're working more than 44 hours a week. It's, well, when you, yeah, when you do the currency exchange, it might be more money that you would making back home, which is what people usually assume that, you know, is so much more money than you'd be making back home. But it's also that maybe we've entered into free trade agreements that destroyed the agriculture where we're from. So we have had to leave farming, right? So um, there was a huge spike in farm workers coming from Mexico when NAFTA was signed in 1994 because the fields... In Mexico, from small farmers and subsistence farmers could not compete with the newly neoliberalized economy that um, Mexico was turning into. And the same... Which would be like factory farming and, and export. Yeah, well, but also subsidized okay. farming, Canadian and uh, from the U.S. So non-subsidized small farming in Mexico couldn't compete. So a lot of people were farmers back home. They owned their land, but they had to leave it because there was no more money in it. They couldn't sell their produce or they have their family growing that stuff back home, but it's not enough anymore, right? So I, don't, I think um, there's a scarcity of good jobs for many reasons back in our home countries. Um, that's why people travel. Mm -hmm. um, and then... I think having access to these jobs also allows people for new options that then they don't want to leave, and mm -hmm. rightly so, because maybe it means education for all of their kids, whereas before, you know, that wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. So it's a choice that people make that we respect. We, we empower people to make those choices and come here. We just think that these jobs 
are in Canada, and so they should be just as good as any other Canadian job. Exactly, and that's where the power dynamic comes in because, again, someone's coming from away, they're not going to be intimately aware of their rights within Canada. Um, and so that's where injustice can kind of sprout out. Um, so you guys chose to use the tomato, um, and well, this show is called Art and Tomatoes, um, but why is that so symbolic of, of what you, the work that you guys are doing? I guess Justicia as a collective came about from work that was being done in the Leamington area, which is where a lot of Canada's tomatoes come from. It's where the Heinz plant used to be before it shut down. Um, there was a wildcat strike of Mexican tomato pickers and growers in Leamington, and that's when a lot of labor people got involved, including some of the Justicia founders that were doing different kinds of labor jobs or community jobs back then. And when they saw what was going on, they got involved. A lot of them were Latino and Caribbean. And so I think there was a personal connection then. And we saw that the labor movement as a whole wasn't offering the kind of feminist and anti-racist analysis that we wanted or that they wanted to put into the work. And that's when Justicia was formed. Mm -hmm. And so that's when the first logo was made. That was a tomato and a fist. Um, and continuously since then, we've continued to work with thousands of tomato growers. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a, a piece of culture that we were influencing with the imagery that we continue to use now because it's also the number one crop, I think, now that people think about when they think of migrant farm workers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so we're coming up on almost exactly a year of what you referred to, the, the Heinz plant shutting down, which um, I think it was everywhere was this campaign to like, screw Heinz, we're going to all switch to French's. Um, how did you feel about that campaign in relation to the greater argument that you were doing? I would imagine it was overlooking kind of a greater issue at hand because this was supposedly in support of farmers, and yet it wasn't delving deeper than that. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, we made a meme about it back then <laughs> because it was so ridiculous to us that anybody would discuss tomatoes and ketchup from Leamington in a plant that was in downtown Leamington without discussing migrant work. That is the town that I was referring to that is usually twenty-five to 30,000 people and you know, it gets an influx of seven to 8,000 people every year um, of migrant workers. So we made a meme with the French's bottle and it said 100% Canadian made or something like that. And it said, you know, but what about fair wages, status, good working conditions? And it broke the internet. We had never had any piece of media that was shared so broadly. Uh, shared so many times, commented on, loved so much. And I think it really got to Canadians, that sort of nationalistic thing that we have and that thing that people have or that Canadians have um, with the States mm -hmm. where, you know, we're, we don't want to buy something made in the States, but we'll buy something Canadian, even though it's actually Mexican and Caribbean grown. Mm -hmm. But we don't mind it as long as it's at as it has a maple leaf on it. Mm -hmm. So we took that opportunity and started a discussion on that. And I think it definitely missed the point. Anytime things are discussed in that way of, you know, being produced as Canadian products, we, we have that, those questions about, you know, well, do you care how they're made or just where they're made? Exactly. 
Um, so what would, on a final note, what would you want the Canadian public to be aware of going forward um, in purchasing, in lobbying their government in, in any direction? What, what action can someone take on an individual basis? I think we, um, we're not trying to say that you shouldn't eat things that are grown here or that they're better or worse than things grown in Mexico, presumably by the same people. We are trying to say that you should care about that because that's how you feed your family. Mm -hmm. And so that's an issue of human rights in Canada, of racism, of sexism, and that the changes are not related to any particular, the changes that need to happen won't be related to any particular grower. So we can't, we're not going to call for boycotts on any particular brand anytime soon. Rather, we need people to help us when we're trying to put pressure on provincial and federal governments. Mm -hmm. Because these are systems that were established many, many years ago. Many of them built on legislation that was drafted for slavery. And so if you think it's wrong for your economy and your dinner to be built on foundations of slavery, then I think it's your responsibility to join migrant workers' fight, their fight for justice and for status and for establishing roots in Canada like so many other people have. And that was Jess in conversation with Sazna Miranda Leal from Justice for Migrant Workers on location at the Steelworkers Hall on Cecil Street here in Toronto. Well, like I said, this is something that um, migrant uh, workers and migrant rights is something that I've been wanting to talk about a lot. And when I first heard that you were planning to go to this event and this is how we were going to sort of access this issue, I was a little concerned at first because, you know, you really want to uh, talk with people who are on the ground, who are involved. And when you start talking about uh, curators for art <laughs> gallery, you start to you have some fears that maybe they're not as informed. Obviously, that's not the case at all after hearing that tape. Sazna is obviously very informed, very involved. And uh, what a, again, like we said up the top, who cares about the what way you get in? You really, it's about getting that message out. And I think, obviously, she's incredibly articulate and very experienced um, uh, with this issue. So um, that was that was a great conversation. I'm really, really glad uh, you were able to access it that way. Yeah, for sure. I can't say that I was expecting to go to a gallery. Well, at the end of the day, this was the Steelworkers Hall. So there was something appropriate about that space. Um, and I think in the forum of May Day or like in the space where we're talking about international workers' rights, a lot of people, you know, are thinking about, yeah, there was representatives of all of the the union at U of T who was kind of doing one of the openings, um, introductions for Sazna and Queso. Um, And, you know, it's very urban concerns most of the time and, and workers' rights and factories. And like, that's the history that we kind of go down. But with work like farming, that's such a old form of labor that it sort of pre-exists uh, industrialization and, and the conversation that rose from that. Um, so it was really cool to see a group of people who couldn't be more informed um, on the issue of labor and, and workers' rights kind of taking on board what 
was sort of new for them or, you know, something that it doesn't dominate that conversation. So on that, this is a topic that is more than just workers' rights. It's more than debates around immigration. It is those things plus race and class. And I agree with Sazna and Hustisia all about power dynamics. So we want to hope that people are good to their core, and most people are, of course. Um, but if there aren't laws or repercussions involved, then the quote-unquote bad apples do go unchecked. So why should we as a country take the risk? Yeah, and honestly, I feel like that power dynamic, it's not like it can create a bad apple, but it certainly can, I think, speed that process. Whenever you have a person or an organization where they really have someone else or or another group in a vulnerable position, that's tough. It's tough because it's so easy to to abuse that power even when you maybe think you're you're not. Exactly. And on a behavioral level, it's just one of those things that if you there's no oversight, um, which, you know, theoretically there is. But this is, again, a weird tangent into our conversation about backyard chickens. But like it, this is only a situation where if the neighbor complains or if someone observes something wrong happening and sends in authorities because who yeah, there's not like police patrolling every um, every farm, making sure that workers are doing okay. It has to come from a complaint. Right. And who is more poised to complain than the worker who is exp- experiencing an injustice? However, when it's a situation where, yeah, they can be blacklisted or, you know, not invited back to do this work again, then that that power and that desire to stand up for themselves gets questioned and and pushed aside you know there's stories of migrant workers that hurt themselves and rather than um coming to their employers and asking for medical attention they don't want to come off as being troublesome so they will keep working through pain and ultimately you know shorten their the potentially shorten the lifespan of their their work life um, and then also potentially severely hurt themselves and not be able to work in the coming season. So, you know, it's it's a scary dynamic and happening to a group of people that, you know, we rely on so heavily to actually bring us food and feed our families and, you know, give us the products that we, yeah, get to put a maple leaf on at the end of the day. Um I was talking with people in my life kind of about this topic over the last week or so, and uh, one of them was talking about how, and we've talked about this before, um, people rose to the challenge when we heard about the issues in Syria um, because it was so unfathomable and so hard to believe. Um, this And that is not to detract uh, from that at all. This is not to detract from that right, at all. No. But... It's one of those situations that there are people within our own borders putting their actual physical bodies on the line to feed our families. They leave their lives and their families to come help provide crops that feed us. And then we're not standing up for them. And when I reason that out, I just, it makes me sick to my stomach. So um, yeah, I was really glad to kind of flesh that out with Sazna. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the truth is, we do have a, a labor shortage in, the, in, this, uh, in this industry. We've talked a lot about how um, 
this is an issue that we have now and we're going to have uh, in the coming years of, you know, farmers retiring um, and not enough people to take their place. And we've talked a lot about how perhaps it's young people, perhaps these young people that are involved with urban agriculture might get to the point where they uh, can take over a large farm. But maybe this is a group that we should be looking at as well. You know, these are people in a lot of cases that are uh, farmers and have owned their own farms um, in Mexico or in Jamaica. And they have the skill, they have the know-how, and they have worked here in in this country. Why not look at this as uh, an opportunity to um, keep this industry uh, healthy and, um, and invest in the future of our country. Exactly. And let, let's look at these people as people who uh, are, I mean, like you say, they are in our country. They are doing uh, work uh, here in our fields to help feed our families. We always see those bumper stickers, farmers feed families. Well, let's not uh, forget that farmers includes uh, migrant farmers as well. Exactly. Um, and we look at the history of immigration in Canada And we have lots of uh, examples of this where uh, immigrants have come here, not just in this country, but all over the world. Immigrants come to the country to do uh, jobs that uh, maybe uh, local people uh, don't want to do or don't have the skills to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, for example, we know, let's take even the Chinese Canadians, obviously a very classic uh, example of men that were... uh, brought over here to do hard work building our railroads mm-hmm. and they had a lot of difficulty bringing their families over in, in um, the the borders were closed to their families for I believe up to 13 years so they were separated from their family for, for that long um, stuck essentially doing this work they had a head tax levied against them which was essentially a tax for being Chinese in, in Canada which essentially meant that they couldn't really uh, earn a lot of money or couldn't accumulate a lot of money. They couldn't bring their family over. They couldn't leave. So they were really stuck here. Um, And that was over 100 years ago. And here we are in uh, 2016, 2017. And, um, you know, um, Cessna was talking about the lack of progress over the last 50 years for for them. But Mm -hmm. I think if you look historically, here we are, we're talking about 100 years ago and how much progress have we made there and how we are treating um, immigrants or potential uh, immigrants uh, to this country. It's sort of sad to see that we we haven't really uh, progressed in that fashion. And that's it for another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks this week to Tsazna Miranda-Leal and Queso of Justice for Migrant Workers. They are the curators of Art and Tomatoes. You can see the exhibit at Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street in Toronto, just off Spadina, through the end of this week. There are also two other parts of the exhibit located at Whippersnapper Gallery on Dundast near Augusta in Kensington Market, and at the Public Window Gallery just north of Queen and Lansdowne at the corner of Seaforth and Lansdowne. Thanks to Amy Lee of Mayworks Festival for organizing the interview and to my friend Kristen Daigle for connecting us. Thanks again to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam of CIUT. It is actually membership drive again at CIUT, so we encourage you to all support community radio by going to CIUT.fm to make a donation. Thanks so much to you for listening. 
You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Foodstuffs Life or by searching Foodstuffs on Facebook. Or you can just head over to our favorite website, <laughs> foodstuffs.life. That's right. Download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, and then, of course, you can always stream us on SoundCloud. I'm Brian Goldman. And I'm Jessica Walker. We'll see you next week. 